The New Testament reading today will come from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. And the sermon text is Psalm 146. So Matthew 11, 1, Psalm 146. This will be our last psalm in this sermon series through the Psalms. We have not studied all of the Psalms, of course, but only selected Psalms. Um, We will, for a few weeks, um, just give attention to some clarifications concerning some of our resolves as a church. I'm looking forward to delivering a a few topical sermons to you before we jump into another book of the Bible. But this will be our last Psalm in this series, Psalm 146. Let's go now to the reading of God's Most Holy Word, Matthew 11. Verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I think we are to imagine that John the Baptist was struggling with despair in prison. And did I have this right? Is this the one? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah who will atone for our sins? Back to the text. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus said, yes, I'm the one. Go tell John and encourage his heart. Let's go now to Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 146 is the first of five Hallelujah Psalms, which bring the Psalter to a grand finale. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And you will notice that this is the repeated refrain of Psalms. 146 through 150. At the very least, each of these psalms begins and ends with the exhortation to praise the Lord. Hallelujah in the Hebrew. 
And in every single line of Psalm 115, we find an exhortation to praise the Lord. That psalm says, Psalm 150, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet and sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I say that this is a very fitting conclusion to the book of praises. Uh, Here is what I wish for you to see by way of introduction. The flow of the Psalms from beginning to end does match the experience of God's redeemed both in the Old Covenant and also in the New. The Psalter began just as our life in Christ began. With a presentation of God's law in chapter 1 and of God's justice and grace in chapter 2. Remember that chapter 2, that is Psalm 2, concluded uh, with good news. There is refuge to be found in the Son. We were urged there in Psalm 2 to run to the Son, to kiss Him lest we perish under God's wrath. So the Psalms began just where the Christian life begins, with an encounter with with the law of God and, and also with the Gospel. And from there the Psalms take us on a journey involving confrontation, communication, devastation, maturation, and finally consummation. I've said this in previous sermons, and so I will not repeat it here in detail. But the flow of the five books of the Psalter matches the history of the kingdom of Israel from David to the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. And here I am saying that, generally speaking, the flow of the Psalms matches our individual experience in Christ too. At the beginning of the Christian life, we heard the law of God, And we heard the gospel. We were convinced of our sin, of the just wrath of God, and of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. And by God's grace, we did run to Him for refuge. And what is the end of the Christian life? What is the end of it? It is the unceasing praise of the Lord in the new heavens and earth. And that is the very thing that the Psalter calls us to as it it concludes. It calls us to unceasing praise. And so the beginning and the end of the Psalms do correspond to the beginning and end of the Christian life. Our stories are all different, of course. I do appreciate that you've contributed your testimonies over the past couple of months. It's been very encouraging to to think of this, that our stories do all differ in the details, but we share enough in common that I can say with confidence that in between the beginning and end of our Christian life, our Christian experience, we all experienced the confrontation, communication, devastation, and maturation that is described in the Psalms in one way or another. This is why the Psalms have spoken so powerfully to the people of God living in all times and places. There is a psalm for every emotion, for every experience, for every season. But note this simply. The psalms conclude with praise. The praise of the Lord is the climax of the psalms. 
The unceasing worship of God is the end of the matter. So the aim of the Psalter, the aim of, of the book of Psalms, is to move us to praise the Lord and to say, Hallelujah. To say it now and to say it for all eternity. And so as we begin, I ask you, is this the aim of your life? Is it the aim of your life to give praise to God? Is the worship of God your highest goal? Is the praise of the Lord your driving purpose? And it ought to be, brothers and sisters. For we were made for this very thing, to praise the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, What is the chief end of man? I think that is a marvelous question to ask, isn't it? A chief means highest or supreme. End here means goal or purpose. So the question is, what is the supreme goal of mankind? What is our highest purpose? You've heard it asked this way, perhaps. What is the meaning of life? You know, What are we here for? And listen to the answer given by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's such a simple answer. But it is so important for us to understand this. Man's chief end, man's highest purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what we were made for. To know God. To worship and serve Him. To glorify Him. And to enjoy Him forever and ever. And so I ask you again, is this what you are living for? Are you living for the glory of God? Is your highest aim to praise Him? Is He your greatest delight? And if our answer is no, then I say to you, our lives are misdirected. For we were made for this purpose. We were designed to know God, to worship and serve Him, and to enjoy Him to all eternity. And Psalm 146 exhorts us to do this very thing as it begins to bring the Psalter to this grand finale. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 146, the psalmist exhorts us to praise the Lord in this life. More precisely, the psalmist exhorts himself to praise the Lord. But of course, he wrote this psalm for all of God's people to sing, and so it is an exhortation for us too. Verse 1, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The phrase, praise the Lord, is a command. It is stated twice in verse 1. And after the second time, it becomes clear that the psalmist is speaking to his own soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul, he says. Now we might ask, why would a man need to exhort himself to praise the Lord? I suppose this may simply be a poetic way of saying, I will praise the Lord. But it might also have something to do with the fact that we do not always wish or think to praise the Lord. Sad as it is, the truth of the matter is that we do not always feel like doing the thing that we know we should do. Our mind, will, and affections are not always set in the right direction. And this is true even for the one who has faith in Christ and has been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we were honest with one another, I think we would confess this. I know that I should praise the Lord. In fact, I will say this is my aim, but I do not always 
feel like doing so. Sometimes I am down and discouraged. Sometimes I am depressed. Sometimes I am despairing. Corruptions do remain within us, brothers and sisters. Though we have been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, though we have been born again, corruptions do remain in us. It is possible for us to go astray, and so we must continually speak to ourselves, saying, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so here in verse 1, we have a little concise and personal call to worship. I read a call to worship at the beginning of every worship service on the Lord's Day. It is a call to the congregation to come and to praise the Lord. That is what we are doing when we assemble on the Lord's Day. We are coming to praise the Lord. But here we have a little brief and and personal call to worship. The psalmist is saying to himself, speaking to his own heart, Praise the Lord. He is exhorting himself. In verse 2, the psalmist responds to his own call to worship, saying, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so, brothers and sisters... I ask you yet again, is this your resolve? Is this your aim? Are you committed to live for the glory of God and to enjoy Him forever in Christ Jesus? And I pray that it would be. I pray that each and every one of you, no matter how young or how old, would run to Christ for refuge and would make the worship of God your highest aim in this life. Do you want to live life well? Do you want to live life to the fullest? Then make this your aim and not other pursuits. How then do we praise the Lord, you ask? How do we do it? Well, we do it in many ways, of course. We praise the Lord when we assemble with the church on the Lord's Day for corporate worship. And so I wonder, are you resolved to do this, brothers and sisters, to assemble on the Lord's Day for corporate worship? Is your aim to praise the Lord, and are you praising the Lord in this way, to assemble with God's people, to sing praises to Him, to hear the Word of God proclaimed, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to pray? This is what God has called us to. So are you resolved to do this? Or are you easily derailed from this? We praise the Lord in corporate, but we also praise the Lord in our homes and within our families as we talk about the things of God and as we give Him thanks. And of course we praise the Lord individually too. In each of these spheres of life we may worship the Lord in song, through prayer and with the words of our lips through our giving, and through our obedience to God's revealed will. No matter the sphere, and no matter the form, we must be sure to worship the Lord from the heart. Uh, Remember, the psalmist here does not call upon his hands nor his feet, nor his lip, uh, nor his feet, nor even his lips to praise the Lord. He calls upon his soul. Isn't that interesting? He he is calling upon himself to praise the Lord from, from the core of his being. Praise the Lord, O my soul, he said. If our praise is to be pleasing to God, it must be offered up in faith and with gratitude in our hearts towards Him. Brothers and sisters, I do pray that you would make the worship of God your highest aim in this life. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist delivers a word of warning, both to himself and to us, when he says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day. His plans perish. I think this is a very important warning for us to consider. We are so prone to misplace our trust. We often trust 
in ourselves. We trust in family and friends. We trust even in our leaders. And while it is right for us to trust others for some things, it is foolish to place ultimate trust in a son of man. Why is this? In fact, the psalm answers the question. Uh, It is unwise, it is foolish to place ultimate trust in a son of man because the sons of men die. Their plans perish with them. And there is, therefore, no true salvation to be found in them. And so we must be very careful, brothers and sisters. We must be very careful with where we place our trust. Yes, there is a sense in which it is right for you to trust in family and friends. That is not being forbidden here. It's right for you to place a certain kind of trust in leaders and in rulers. But the point is this. No mere man is worthy of ultimate trust. And that is what the psalmist is here referring to, ultimate trust. We see that something similar is said in Psalm 118, verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So there that that image of of refuge comes out again. It, It comes out throughout the Psalter. We were urged in Psalm 2 to run to the Lord and to His Son for refuge. And we are exhorted to do that very thing throughout the Psalter. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Is it right to trust in princes to a degree, rulers and leaders? Sure. But it is better to run to the Lord for refuge. Our ultimate trust must be in Him. And so where is your trust placed ultimately? I think this is something we must ponder deeply and not only superficially. Where is your trust placed ultimately? I'm not asking you to give me a a superficial answer here, but an honest answer. Really, if you examine your heart and mind, if you bore down into your soul, where is your trust placed ultimately? Is it placed in man? Is it placed in your spouse? Is it placed in your parents, your friends, your pastors, your governor, your president. If your trust is set on the sons and daughters of men, they will fail you in the end. That is the point here. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That is 1 Peter 1, 24-25. And so we must be sure to trust in the Lord above all else, And then we will be free to place the appropriate kind of trust in your fellow man. Do you see the freedom that is there? Trust in the Lord, run to Him for refuge, and then you are free to place the appropriate kind of trust in your fellow man. This is a very important warning for us to consider, but I think it was an especially important warning for the the saints who lived under the Old Covenant to hear. For a time... Israel was set apart by God from all the other nations of the earth. For a time, their kings were anointed by God in a very special way. Prophets and priests ministered in their midst by God's appointment. Are you picturing this? Can you imagine what it was like to live under old covenant Israel and to have a king anointed by God in such a special way rule over you? And to have prophets and priests ministering all about you? What a privilege it must have been. But I think there would have been a special kind of temptation for Israel, the people of Israel, to trust 
not in God, but in their rulers and leaders. Think of the promises made to David concerning the succession of kings descending from him and an everlasting kingdom. We know that all of these promises made to David were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in His heavenly kingdom. But imagine the temptation that the Israelites would have felt to trust in King David or in King Solomon, or in any of the other kings who would descend from them. Anointed as they were, they were mere men. That is what we must recognize. They would eventually die and be buried. Or to quote Peter as he preached on the day of Pentecost, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Why did Peter need to emphasize that? As he preached on the day of Pentecost, as he preached the gospel. He's speaking to a group of predominantly Jewish people. And he's saying, think of it, David, King David, as great as he was, he went to the grave and he's there even now. In other words, do not trust now in David, nor in the kings that succeeded from him, nor in this nation. Do not trust in them, but rather Peter, Peter was urging his hearers to trust in the Lord and to trust in God's Messiah. Neither David nor any of the earthly kings who would come after him, with the exception of one, could bring ultimate salvation, therefore. The Israelites were to be especially careful to place their trust not in mere men, not in their earthly kings or princes, but in God. And as you know, ironically, many of them stumbled in this very way. When the Messiah did appear, they were looking for an earthly king to establish an earthly kingdom. They failed to recognize that God's anointed one came to do so much more than this. So trust not in man, for he will perish, is the warning of verses 3 and 4. Instead, we are to place our trust in God, for He is most powerful he is ever faithful, He is kind, and He is just. That is what is urged in verses 5-9. through nine. Here the psalmist says, Blessed is He whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. Do not place your ultimate trust in man, for man will perish. Instead, Trust in God, for He will never fail you. The psalm says, Blessed or happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Why does the psalmist here refer to God as the God of Jacob? What an interesting title this is for God. Uh, we are to uh, hope in the God of Jacob. I think there are two reasons. One, it was to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob that the promises of God concerning salvation coming to all the nations of the earth through Israel were given. And so when the psalmist urges us to have the God of Jacob as our help, he's reminding us of the precious and very great promises that God made to the patriarchs of Israel. When, when God is called the God of Jacob, it's meant to remind us of those promises that were delivered to the patriarch of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is here reminding us of the covenant that God transacted with Abraham and his offspring. And so the meaning is this, trust not in man, trust in God, trust in God's promises. 
2, it may also be that Jacob is emphasized here, and not Abraham or Isaac, because he was such a flawed man. I wonder if you could think of the story of Jacob there in the book of Genesis. He was a flawed man. He stumbled greatly in life. And here we are reminded that God does accomplish His purposes through flawed men and women. He used Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He used even David and Solomon. Is it right for these men to be honored? Of course it is. They were to be trusted to a degree, but like you would be, they were flawed. They sinned. They had wavered in the faith from time to time. They all died. They were buried. None of them could save us from our sins. And so again, the message is this, Do not hope, therefore, in these, in King David, or in any other, but instead, trust in David's king. Do not trust in Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but rather trust in the God of Jacob. And that is the message, I think. We are to trust in God, for He is powerful. We are reminded here in this passage that He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That really helps us to regain perspective, doesn't it? Trust not in man, for man will perish. Trust in God, who is the Creator. He made everything around us. He made everything seen and unseen. He is worthy of our trust, therefore. Furthermore, we are to trust in God because He is faithful. The text says, He keeps faith forever. The NET Bible says, He remains faithful forever. And that is the meaning, I think. If God were only powerful but not faithful, then He would not be worthy of our hope and trust. If He were only powerful but not faithful, He would not be worthy of our hope and trust. But He is most powerful and He is ever faithful. He is unchanging. He is constant. He will surely do all that He has said. He will keep every one of His promises. Not one of them will fail. And here is another reason to trust in God. We are reminded here that He is kind. Verse 7, He is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Now as I read these verses now, I think for the third time, uh, the question comes to mind, how should we interpret these verses? On the one hand, we know that the Lord will do these things for His people literally on earth and in this life from time to time. He will certainly give us our daily bread. He does lift us up when we are bowed down. But on the other hand, we know that the righteous do sometimes suffer. The blind are not always healed, are they? The prisoners are not always set free. And injustice does sometimes seem to prevail here on earth. So how are we to interpret these verses which speak of God doing these things for His people? Well, these truths must ultimately be interpreted spiritually and eternally. When will God execute justice for the oppressed? When will He satisfy the hungry? When will He set the prisoners free and open the eyes of the blind, lift up those who are bowed down, etc.? When will He do these things? Well, we must say sometimes He does it in a most literal way now, But He surely does it for His people now, in a spiritual sense. And He will do it fully, ultimately, and eternally in the new heaven and earth after Christ returns. 
Until then, he does surely watch over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. We are to remember that we are talking about ultimate things here, aren't we? We're talking about ultimate trust. Where should we place our trust ultimately? Well, we have learned that man is not to be trusted ultimately, for all men perish along with their plans. But God is to be trusted ultimately, for He will never perish. He will never change, but will surely keep all of His promises. And we should keep our minds fixed upon the ultimate as we consider what is said here regarding the Lord's kindness shown to the oppressed, the hungry, the sick, and the vulnerable. Though God's people will suffer trials and tribulations in this life, their hope is set on God, knowing that He will deliver us from all evil forever and ever in the life to come. He will surely do this. Ultimately, He will do this for us in Christ Jesus. And so I am saying that God is worthy of trust, for He is powerful, He is faithful, and He is kind. And we must not forget that He is also just. In verse 7, we are reminded that He executes justice for the oppressed. This He does now, and this He will do at the final judgment, fully and finally. And in verse 9, we read, The Lord watches over the sojourner, He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. God will do what is right and just on the last day. And this He will do for us through Jesus the Messiah. And that I think is the point. Jesus the Messiah will be the one who brings us all of these blessings and all of these benefits. God will do this for His people through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah is everywhere present in this song, brothers and sisters. Consider this. One, He is present in the mention of the God of Jacob. How so? He is present in the mention of the God of Jacob. Again, here verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. We are to remember what it is that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did He promise to them? Answer, He promised to give them many descendants. He promised to give them a land. And to bring the Messiah or the Savior into the world through their offspring. This Messiah would bless the nations. This was the promise that was delivered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when God is called here the God of Jacob, we are to remember those promises and how they all land in Jesus the Messiah. How they are all fulfilled in Him. Jesus is present in this mention of the God of Jacob. To hope in the God of Jacob is to hope in the Lord who entered into a covenant with the patriarchs. To hope in the God of Jacob is to trust in the promises that He made in that covenant. Two, the Messiah is also present in the warning of verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now in general, this is true. We are to not trust in a son of man ultimately before, because the son of men they die they go into the grave and all of their plans all of their purposes all of their labor comes to nothing ultimately but there is one exception isn't there there is one son of man one prince who is worthy of our trust for when he died his plans did not perish his work did not come to nothing for he rose again from the grave and lives forever and ever. He is 
the Son of Man. He is the descendant of King David. He is not only David's son, he is David's Lord, for he is also the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. He is worthy of our trust, for he is no mere man. Rather, he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And he is the Savior, for he died for the sins of God's elect, rose on the third day, ascended to the Father. From there he will return on the last day to judge and to make all things new. And so Jesus, the Christ, is the exception to the rule, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. For in Christ there is salvation. Generally speaking, when His breath departs, He returns to the earth on that very day His plans perish, but not so with Christ. He went into the grave and He rose again. This is true of every other son of man, but not Jesus. He is worthy of our trust. And to trust in Jesus is to trust in the God of Jacob, for He is the true Son of Abraham, the true Israel. He is the Lord's anointed one. And finally, the Messiah is present in the description of the Lord's kindness towards the children of man. It is through Jesus the Christ that God executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, and loves the righteous. How does God do this for us? How does He bring us these benefits? How does He show us this kindness? Only through the Christ. For the Christ has cleansed us from all of our sins if we trust in Him. He has given us the victory. He has freed us. We are, we are partakers of all of these benefits. This kindness from God comes to us, but only through Jesus the Christ. We're to think of it. The text says that the Lord loves the righteous. Well, the righteous would not be righteous were it not for the Messiah. We are righteous only because He is righteous. His righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith. And think of it, God loves us only through the Messiah, for by His shed blood we have been reconciled to the Father and adopted as His beloved children. So God has set His love upon His people. How does He do it? Through Jesus the Christ, the beloved Son of God. That is how He does it. That Jesus is the one through whom we come to have these blessings from God, was demonstrated by the wonders that He performed in His earthly ministry. I think those signs and wonders are often misinterpreted. Some will read the Gospels and they will, they will see how Jesus gave sight to a man born blind and caused a lame man to walk and raised another from the dead. They will... They will look at that and they will say, well, certainly Jesus is about that work. That is why He came, you know, to bring physical deliverance. And, and certainly Jesus is about that work even today. This is, this is His purpose, to give sight to the blind and to make the lame to walk and to raise the dead. And we do not doubt that God can still work miracles. We sometimes pray for healing, don't we? That God would bring relief to those who are physically suffering. And that is all right. And sometimes God does answer those prayers by bringing the relief to those who are suffering. I am not denying any of that. But what we must recognize is that when Jesus performed these miracles, when He performed these wonders in His earthly ministry, they functioned as signs. That is what the New Testament calls them, signs. And, and what do signs do? Well, they point to some reality other than themselves. Um, they point our eyes in, in a certain direction. And what did the signs that Jesus performed, these miraculous deeds, what did they point our eyes to? They 
directed our eyes to the reality that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. I would like for you to make this connection. Here the psalm speaks of the kindness of the Lord, that that the Lord is the one who who gives sight to the blind, who, who brings relief to those who are suffering, sets prisoners free. Now think about Jesus' earthly ministry and the miracles He performed. When John the Baptist was in prison and struggling with doubt and despair, He sent His disciples to Jesus to ask if He was really the one. Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the son of Abraham, the son of David, the promised one? And what did Jesus say? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so what did Jesus do? He said, go, go tell John the Baptist, my friend, what it is that you are witnessing. The signs that you are seeing. A man born blind can now see. And this is a testimony to the fact that I am in fact the one, the Messiah. This was enough for John. It should be enough for us too. John, you will notice, would not be freed from prison. God sets the prisoners free. Well... Did you know John the Baptist was not set free? He was killed, in fact. But John the Baptist was set free for all eternity in Christ Jesus. Amen? And not all who are in Christ are set free, physically speaking. Some suffer to the point of death, just like our Savior did. Just like His apostles did. Not all who are blind receive their sight. But if they are in Christ, their eyes have been opened spiritually to see the truth of the gospel. And they see with clarity their God and their Savior. Not all will be healed and freed from every affliction. The Scriptures nowhere promise this. But in Christ Jesus we are truly healed. We are truly comforted. This we will enjoy for all eternity. We are speaking of ultimate things here, brothers and sisters. Not temporal things, earthly things. Things that will pass away. We are speaking of ultimate things here. John the Baptist would be killed for his witness not long after he asked this question about Jesus. But because Jesus performed these signs, he was reassured that Jesus was the one and his faith endured. Again, the miracles that Jesus performed were signs which demonstrated that he was the long-awaited Messiah who would come to heal our spiritual sickness and to set us free from spiritual bondage now and for all eternity. In verse 10, we find a marvelous conclusion to this psalm. Here, we are once again urged to praise the Lord. And so, Psalm 146 began with this exhortation, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And here at the end, we are again exhorted to praise the Lord. This time, the stated reason is that the Lord will reign for all eternity. The Lord will reign forever, the text says. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is a very good reason to praise the Lord. He will reign for all eternity. Do not put your trust in princes. Do not put your trust in rulers, in in, in the children of man. They will perish, their plans will come to nothing. They do not have the power to save. But praise the Lord, for the Lord will reign. Forever, to all generations, He is worthy of our praise. 
And brothers and sisters, as we move now into our second decade together as a congregation, I could not think of a more important exhortation to deliver to you than to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Live your life, brothers and sisters, not for the things of this world, not for your own pleasure, not for your own glory, but for the glory of God. Praise Him. Make this your highest aim. And if you are to praise Him, you must first trust in Him. You must be found in Jesus the Messiah. You must take refuge in Him, being washed by His shed blood. He is worthy of our hope and our trust, for He has risen from the grave for our salvation. Let us be found in Him, and let us live always for the glory of God. Let us bow together for a word of prayer now. Great God in heaven, we do confess that You are worthy of all of our trust. You are the Creator of heaven and earth. You are faithful. You are good and kind. You are constant. You will never change. And we are not this way. We are creatures who are flawed and limited so very much when it comes to power and wisdom. And we will perish, O Lord. So help us to see You as You are, as wholly other than us. You are high, high and exalted, O Lord. So increase our love and appreciation for You. Increase our faith in You. Increase our understanding of who it is that You are and help us to place our trust squarely upon You and upon the Messiah that You have sent. We thank You for the Messiah. We thank You that He has atoned for our sins and that He rose in victory. We thank You for the kindness that You have shown to us in Him. May we run to Him for refuge and stay there until You return, O Lord. Until then, do help us to sojourn well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.